Welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast, a destination for those who are interested in the issues, the debates and the thinking about philanthropy. In each episode, we'll bring you a short discussion about the issues engaging the nation's philanthropists and those in the for-purpose sector, whether it's a discussion about what it means to be a philanthropist in Australia, guidance to improve your giving practice, or information about Philanthropy Australia's signature thought-leading events, this podcast is for you. So Peter, please tell me about how the impetus for Mind Medicine Australia came about, what led you to this point where you felt it was important to establish an organisation that could become a vehicle for supporting this research and training. It really came from the fact that uh, Tanya and I have spent a lot of time uh, developing charities that uh, help disadvantaged people. And one of the things when you work in the disadvantaged area that you notice pretty quickly is that uh, there can be a very high incidence of mental health problems and uh, in fact higher than in the general community. And it occurred to both of us that actually unless you solve the mental health problem or at least improve it, it's very difficult to get people to permanently move out of disadvantage. So that got us to looking at uh, the mental health system and what comes through when you look at it really clearly is that uh, we spend a huge amount of money on on mental health. Uh, We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We have a a world-leading medical system, but actually the mental health stats in Australia are some of the worst in the world. Uh, we're looking at like one in five people now having a chronic mental health condition. One in eight people on antidepressants up by about 95% from 15 years ago. One in four older people now being on, on, on antidepressants. Uh, really concerned, really of concern, uh, more and more young people Uh, who don't yet even have adult brains being put on antidepressants. So it seemed to us that the thing that was lacking in the system wasn't money, although more money is always good. It wasn't fabulous medical practitioners. It was was the dearth of really effective treatments. We then came across uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy overseas. And uh, I've got to say our first reaction was that sounds interesting, but it sounds a uh, a bit far out. How long ago is this that you that you first uh, became aware of it? Probably four years. Okay. Yeah, so mm. two th- probably 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was one of those things that uh, the people that we saw talking about it were eminent people, people that we respected. Uh, they talked about research that was being done by major universities. We looked at that research. We looked at the trial results. We saw that, in fact, uh, the use of psilocybin, psilocybin mm. comes from mushrooms in the mm. natural form. Mm was being used uh, for, to, for treatment-resistant depression, and that MDMA was being used for PTSD and getting some outstanding results in phase two trials. We saw that, there were, that uh, both were now in phase three, uh, which means you, you've got multi-site trials taking place, and that indeed the, the, the uh, federal, uh, the FDA in America, which is a, th- their regulatory organization, uh, had actually given both sets of trial breakthrough therapy designation, which meant the FDA was saying that actually these medicines have to be taken seriously because they really could tr- change the, the treatment paradigm. So that got us excited, and uh, we then met with uh, key people from overseas universities and formed the conclusion that this therapy was incredibly prospective, could change the paradigm for mental health in this country, 
and there needed to be an organisation in Australia which really focused on making people in this country aware at every level and started to think about how it could be introduced to help people in this country. So there is clearly an understanding at some clinical level in this country about that overseas trials and where, where that's evolved to into that now past the stage two and into the stage three trial. But why wasn't there an organisation like yours already uh, engaged in this particular work? Well, two things. I mean, you would think that uh, there would be broad awareness of like major treatment developments overseas in Australia. But what we're finding time and time again is that actually there's not broad awareness, that people you would expect to know about this stuff actually aren't aware of it. And to be fair to them, you know, most people who work in the medical health space are incredibly busy people. And they're seeing patients uh, working long hours. And to keep on top of what's happening overseas is a challenge. It's the first observation. The second observation is that uh, there are quite a significant number of organizations, particularly charities working in the mental health space, but they all have their territories. And unfortunately, what often happens is that when people have a territory, you know, my territory is looking after uh, people with anorexia, or my territory is looking after people with PTSD, or I'm focused on young people, they sort of almost build a wall around themselves and just focus on those areas rather than see the big picture. And uh, I think for that reason, there never had been a, an organisation that emerged which said, actually, we're going to focus on this new treatment paradigm because that actually could completely change the paradigm in Australia in terms of available treatments. It's an interesting time to be in this space, though, isn't it? Because you, you look at what's occurring, uh, both in terms of the way that um, the state government's going. So we've, we've got this uh, marijuana or cannabis um, assisted uh, health yep. uh, regime, which has been approved in a legislative level. Yep. But we've also got this uh, other element of uh, where uh, proactive support for um, uh, heroin users with the drug injecting rooms in, yep. in Richmond has caused a degree of uh, social discord as far yep. as the, the community is concerned. Where do you see what you're looking at here in terms of that continuum? Where are we with something like this in terms of social acceptance around that particular issue? Uh, well, first, I think we need to put heroin off to one side because yeah. you know, heroin is a, a very dangerous recreational yeah. drug and uh, people get addicted and it causes all sorts of health problems. So we want to put that to one side because it's completely different from psychedelics. Psychedelics have a long, history, a long safety history. Uh, you know, people have been taking them now for, for uh, almost 50 years and safety is very strong. So the, the other thing about psychedelics is that contrary to public, broad public views, psychedelics are non-addictive. You know, I think what's happened, unfortunately, in Australia is people lump all drugs together and say they're bad. Then medical cannabis came along and it came along because people weren't getting the support they needed in terms of pain relief from the current medical system and they were desperate. And they found that medical cannabis, for whatever reason, would relieve pain or would relieve you know, symptoms of epilepsy. And so they desperately needed it. And it took a lot for our system to start moving, but slowly it did move. And we're now in a situation where uh, if you're a doctor and you think the appropriate 
support for a patient is medical cannabis, you can go online and you can get a, an approval mm. very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Now that change in psychology from, you know, cannabis is dangerous to actually in a medical environment, it can actually be enormously beneficial to patients who have got some terrible conditions, frankly, uh, that they're dealing with, has opened the way for psychedelic therapy. You know, I've been quite surprised about how open people are to, to, to listening and hearing about what we're doing. And I'm talking about, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, people in government. And I think they're open because they realize that actually the current mental health system isn't actually solving our problems. But do you also then see if I, if I interpret what you just said correctly, you're also suggesting that the breakthrough or the, or the wedge in, in, into social change around this issue has in part been driven by the acknowledgement that medical cannabis does have a role to play. Uh, Yes, in the sense that I think medical cannabis has opened people's minds to the fact that things that, uh, or drugs that people traditionally thought of as, in quotes, bad, actually, if you use them sensibly, can actually provide enormous medical relief. Uh, And, you know, cannabis and and psychedelics are different, uh, and they're used for different purposes. But you know, it's a step forward for people to stand back and say, rather than believe all the prejudice and all the stigma, let's just look at the science and let's look at trial results and let's look at, look at what's actually happening when people in a medically con- controlled environment take this medication. And if the results are good, why on earth would we not actually be introducing that sort of uh, medicine into uh, our portfolio of medicines that can be used and prescribed by doctors? So St. Vincent's here yep. uh, are doing a, a trial yep. with um, palliative care, yep. I believe, with uh, MDM. No, uh, with, with psilocybin. With psilocybin, okay. That's the only one that's trial that's ongoing in Australia at the moment. Are there other trials looming? Yeah, it, it's, it's fair to say that, uh, I mean, as Australians, it's sort of a bit, a bit embarrassing because you've had trials taking place in, in America and, and uh, Europe now for many years. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of discussion about the effectiveness of these trials. Australia's been really slow off the mark. And I think that's partly because of our con- inherent conservatism in these areas. As you say, the first trial is about to take place, uh, which is palliative care using psilocybin. So what's your... Um reading of this then in terms of the way the international medical community is reflecting on Australia's conservative approach to this? I think, I think anyone who was, uh, who's involved in uh, psychedelic medical research overseas would be a bit surprised about how slow Australia's been in this area. You know, when you talk to overseas uh, researchers, the view of Australia, quite rightly, is you know we've developed leading researchers. We've got fantastic universities, which are of world standard. And when you then tell them that actually there's been very little research in Australia in this area, that it's the, the normal reaction we get is one of surprise because they they expect more, frankly, from this country. Is there then, do you think, um, a social acceptance in Australia? That- is, is, are we getting to a stage when we are a bit more relaxed about this? Is I suppose in a sense what I'm asking is, is the dimensions of the mental health problem so significant and far-reaching that we are now at a stage where some of that innate conservatism might slowly start to er- diminish? 
I mean, definitely. I mean, when you talk about one in five having a, a chronic mental health condition, that means that every one of us either has it ourselves or has a family member with a mental health condition or a close friend. So we're all seeing how terrible this is. And I think, I think that desperation that we're seeing in loved ones who aren't able to deal with the problems that they've got is leading to people being much more open about other treatment options. Um, you know, the current treatment options are fundamentally psychotherapy, which is long and it's arduous and it's costly and requires a real commitment of time and effort from uh, the patient. And uh, the outcomes there, you know, at best are probably 50% in terms of remission rates, at best. Uh, or if you've got depression, antidepressants. And antidepressants only work with, uh, at best, probably 50% of the people they're given to. And even when they do work, uh, a lot of those people have continuing symptoms. Mm. So it helps, but continuing symptoms. They can have nasty side effects, mm. really nasty side effects. And they're, they're, they're like a drug because you get addicted to them. You know, you, you start taking them and you've got to keep take, taking mm. them. So they're actually, they're actually, I mean, they're the best we have, but they're actually not that great. So, uh, so what does that tell us then in terms of the way that we understand how the brain responds or how the brain behaves when it's in this, for want of a better phrase, distressed state? Well, that's, that's the intriguing thing because uh, you know, we, we like to think that as human beings, we understand things. And I think it's very fair to say that our understanding of how the brain uh, creates mental illness is really at a very early stage. And you know, the brain is incredibly complicated. You know, some people refer to it as the most complicated thing that we know in the known universe. Uh, the understanding of how the brain creates mental illness is in its infancy. And even things like antidepressants, I mean, when you sit down with people who understand these uh, pharmaceuticals and, and ask them to explain exactly how uh, they can create benefit in the brain, uh, the honest answer is that people don't know. I mean, they, they know they affect uh, serotonin receptors, but exactly how they work is a bit of a is, is still a bit of a mystery. Which you know, I have to say, as a relative new entrant in, into this field, really surprised me because I'd assumed that actually there was a lot of mm. known scientific mm. understanding about how these sorts of drugs work. Mm. And in fact, you know, it's it's not as great as you'd think it would be. Mm. But it's the best we have. So there is um, a diagnosis of treatment-resistant depression, which is clearly a, an awful outcome for a lot of people who can't yep. even get any great relief from antidepressants. What's your understanding of the capacity for that condition on the spectrum to be treated by, or potentially uh, get some relief from psychedelics? Well, that's where it gets really interesting because you know the definition that's used for treatment-resistant depression is that uh, uh, you have depressive symptoms. You've tried two different types of antidepressants, and they're not working for you. And sometimes only two. Uh, well, uh, two is you know the, the trouble with antidepressants, as I understand it, and bear in mind I'm not a medical person, mm. so I put that in there quite clearly, is that uh, if you've taken two and then you're given a third one the chances of the third one working, the probability goes down every mm. time. Mm. So if you've taken two and you then take a third, uh, as I say, the chances of that working for you are quite low. Mm. And, the, and if you then take a fourth, it's even lower. Mm. 
So uh, if you've taken two antidepressants and they haven't worked, uh, you're starting to become uh, in, in the difficult basket. Mm. And sometimes people have had that condition like for decades mm. because mm. there hasn't been a re remedy. Now mm. for those sort of people, what we're finding in the overseas trials is that the remission rates that uh, people are getting in the trials, and we're talking about re remission, we're not talking about response, we're talking about remission where there's no uh, indications of continuing depression, something like 60%, which is, uh, in terms of medical treatments in this area, is just uh, is stratospheric in terms of uh, impact. I'm interested in the use of that word remission because I, I, I mean I suppose for most of us in mainstream we we see the word remission used more specifically in terms of cancer. Yep. So why is it applied in this instance? I think it's I think it's 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 a similar use of the term. So you know if you've had uh, a particular type of cancer and uh, the, the 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 cancer has been brought under control. Uh, so that you're not, you no longer have symptoms. Uh, they call that remission because you never quite know whether you've defeated the cancer. Mm, it can mm, still be in your body, mm, mm, ready to re-emerge. Mm. And the same is true of mental health. You know, somebody who's had depression, particularly treatment-resistant depression, severe depression, and uh, they've been given remission by whatever methodology has been applied to them, you just don't know whether that's going to reoccur in the future. So, you know, they're in remission, they're leading a normal life, and hopefully that'll be maintained throughout their life, but you just don't know, because you don't know what's lingering in the brain that could cause that depression to re-emerge. And again, it's part of what I was saying before, that, you know, we, we like to think that uh, our medical people really understand how the brain works, but unfortunately, it's really at its infancy. Mm. Mm. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so if you're in that situation of, of having gone through decades of unsuccessful treatment. Does this make you, in your considered view, with the caveat that you're not a clinician, uh, does this make you more or less likely to find some likelihood of success with psychedelics? Oh, I think I think the success uh, can apply to people who haven't got treatment-resistant depression. Mm. Uh, but to date, the trials have been just done on that category of mm. people. Um, but you know, it, if it if it works with treatment-resistant depression, you know, why wouldn't it work with depression before it became treatment-resistant mm. depression? Mm. That's what, that's another thing that I find incredibly exciting about this. That uh, uh, it could apply to very large numbers of people in Australia, and really could start to turn those nasty uh, mental health statistics around, so we have a healthier Australia. So one of the other great areas that it appears to work quite efficiently in is with PTSD. Yeah. What's your understanding of of why it has some efficacy in that with that particular condition? Because in many ways, PTSD strikes me as being having a very broad suite of diagnostic elements. Yeah. Uh, PTSD is you've just hinted at it all. It's notoriously difficult for a physician to treat mm. because it is complex. Mm. But at the the underpinning of PTSD is obviously trauma. The person's experienced some form of trauma in their life, which has led to a mental illness condition. Uh, now we tend to think of PTSD as uh, applying to veterans and you know, people who've been mm -hmm. on the front line in war and had their mm -hmm. lives threatened. 
but it's much broader than that in in Australia. It's you know uh, women uh, who've been uh, sexually molested as children, or men for that matter. Uh, you know we see a lot of them having PTSD, uh, who are permanently traumatised. Uh, first responders, you know people mm. who who appear at the mm. site of a dreadful accident mm. and see. Uh, uh, dead people or people in, in enormous pain and suffering, they can often suffer from PTSD. So it's very broad in our society. Uh, the reason MDMA is so exciting is that uh, what happens when you take MDMA is that for the first half an hour, nothing really seems to happen. And you could well be saying, well, uh, this is interesting, but nothing's happening. Then you start to feel an inner warmth and you start to feel really comfortable and you start to feel like you're in a loving, stable environment. And this is why the medicine is so powerful, because the problem with PTSD is the traditional treatment of PTSD is therapy. Mm. And what the therapist is trying to do is get you to unburden yourself about what caused the trauma. But the problem is that every time the therapist gets close to you explaining what happened to you, it triggers in you the same emotional feelings you felt during the trauma. So you freak out, and that prevents you actually discussing uh, what happened to you. What MDMA does is it makes you feel very comfortable and very secure and in a loving space. So is it a disinhibitor in that sense? Yeah, and that enables the therapist to start talking with you about what happened. Now, uh, what happened to you is, st is still bad and it'll, it'll always be bad, but it means that your last memory of the trauma is talking about it in an environment where you felt comfortable. And that's the first step to healing, that ability to talk about a trauma with comfort. So it's actually, uh, it's a two-stage process. It, it work, has to work in conjunction with therapy. Oh yeah, both of these do. Mm. But yeah, perhaps if I just explain the, the different types of psychedelic therapy. The first one that uh, I was talking about was the use of psilocybin for depression. And that works in a very different way than MDMA for PTSD. If you're, if, you're, if, you, if you're undergoing psilocybin therapy for depression, what will actually happen is you'll go into a, after you've been screened, screened by a psychiatrist that this uh, medicine is appropriate for, for you, what will happen is you'll go into a clinical environment, you'll spend time with the, the two therapists who are gonna look after you, uh, just so that you're comfortable with them and they know a bit about you and then you'll lie on a couch, you'll put eye shades on, uh, the, there's probably some, some nice music in the background, and you'll take a, a, a capsule of psilocybin. And again, for the first half an hour, you'll be lying there thinking, well, this is pleasant, but actually nothing, nothing's happening. And then after about half an hour, you'll start to see colors uh, in your eyes. Now bear in mind, you've got uh, shades over your eyes, and the, the colors will be the probably the traditional psychedelic colors. And again, you'll be thinking, this is sort of interesting, but you know, I can't see how this can help me. And then suddenly, if they've got the dosage right, which they will get it right, you'll be transported into another uh, st state of consciousness, an altered reality. And what seems to be happening in that altered reality is that the control part of your brain, which creates order to your everyday life and enables you to actually focus is taken away. It sort of goes quiet. So suddenly you're lying there and you're getting information from all of your senses and you have no control over the information that's coming into your brain. 
I liken it to being you know in, in a in a cinema where you've got uh, uh, screens all around you and you have no idea what's going to happen next, and you're just sitting there, sitting there or lying there passively, having the experience. So that's very different from from MDMA therapy because during the psilocybin experience, you're not going to have a lucid conversation with your therapist. No. What the therapist is there essentially to make sure you feel comfortable. The beauty of the experience is that when you come out of it, and the experience will last probably five hours, when you come out of it, you feel incredibly connected with everything. Now they've done MRI scans of the brain under psilocybin, and what it shows is the brain is making connections right across the brain. So it's, it's establishing new neural pathways and re-establishing old neural pathways. So suddenly, as I say, you come out of this experience feeling incredibly connected with everything and realizing that actually everything is connected. Now that is completely reversed to a typical depressive condition mm -hmm. where a person actually thinks in loops, I'm not good enough, no one loves me, my life is, is terrible. Uh, you're now feeling really connected with everything. And it's in that sort of state that the therapist can start talking to you about your experience and how you feel. And the wonder of that actually seems to be the reason that it, it works uh, in terms of helping people with depression.